which uh, has all the things going on at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we do a men's Bible study Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. at Panera. Would invite anyone to come out for that. It's a great time to wake up. Uh, excuse me, 6.30, grab some coffee and a bagel and some time in the scriptures. Additionally, we just began a women's Bible study on Thursdays at 7 p.m. where they're going through the gospel-centered life. It actually meets right across the street in the house over there. So invite anyone to be a part of that. That literally just started. I think we had 12 or 15 women that first night, uh, so I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, beach days are coming to Church of the Redeemer. And what are beach days? They're times for the church to get together Sunday afternoon for fellowship on the beach. So they're going to be starting July 17th. I think it's at 4 o'clock, 4.30. I know it's 4.30, heading down to 70th Street and just coming together to uh, have fun, bring some food, uh, and enjoy one another's company. So I encourage you to be a part of that. And we're having a potluck lunch after uh, the service, so invite you to stick around for that. We have some tasty and nutritious food all teed up for you in honor of Get Moving Fitness Week, so uh, stick around for that. Now I want to invite you uh, to look at our scripture. We're looking at 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 50, which is the story of David and Goliath. I think we know a lot of this story, so I'm going to read it to you. Now, that being said, it's a very, very long text, so I'm kind of chopping it up into pieces. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11, and then 32 to 51. So feel free to follow along in the Bibles that are found, or in the insert that can be found as well. So this is 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 11, then 32 through 51. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for, your, for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man, and we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. And greatly afraid. Now, verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a war, man of war from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took in his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came to draw near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but it's somewhat painful to be here at church right now because the Wimbledon final is going on right now, even as we speak. Rafael Nadal and uh, Djokovic, I'm a huge tennis fan, and I love watching Wimbledon. Luckily, there's this thing called the DVR. And so as soon as I leave here, I'm going and I'm grabbing my chips and I'm tuning out and watching the Wimbledon final. It's been a great fortnight. You know, I love watching sports. We're a country, in fact, that's fascinated with sports. I saw this article in the Atlantic Journal-Constitution just on Tuesday about this woman, Grace Lee, who may not be the woman that you want to take out for a meal. For the 5 foot 2, 11, 110 pound Lee can pack a lot into her tiny frame. Consider 60 buffalo wings in less than an hour or five large pizzas and later dessert. Lee is, a growing, uh, is among a growing number of female competitive eaters around the nation. And on Monday, tomorrow, we'll go up against eight other women in the annual Nathan's famous 4th of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest. I started this for fun, and now it's taken on a life of of its own, said Lee, who goes by the newly minted moniker, Maneater. 
This is the first year that Nathan's has added women, a women's table for the event, which will draw about 40,000 people to Coney Island. But our competition will be tough. Among those ready to chow down for the coveted mustard belt and $10,000 will be Sonia Thomas, AKA the Black Widow, who holds 37 competitive eating records, according to her website. George Shea has watched Lee Chowdown. I've got to tell you, I've watched Grace compete and I was extremely impressed with her eating ability, said Shea, chairman of the New York-based Major League Eating Association, the organization that oversees the most stomach-centric sports. She is really a great ambassador for the sport. Women's competitive eating. We are a country that loves to win. And we're fascinated with it, aren't we? Think of all the TV shows that we watch. America's Top Model. Who is the next American Idol? The Voice. So you think you got talent. So you think you can dance. We're fascinated with women. I think it was Vince Lombardi, the legendary Green Bay Packer coach, who spelled it out best in this quote. There is no room for second place. There's only one place in my game, and that's first place. I've finished second twice in my time at Green Bay, and I don't want to ever finish second again. There's a second place bowl game, but it's a game for losers, played by losers. It is and always has been an American zeal to be first in anything we do, and to win, and to win, and to win. I think that's why we love this passage about David and Goliath. You know, it's the story we all love. It's the uh, person that came from the slums to rise and become a world-class athlete. It's the small businessman who had a big dream and at his kitchen table hatched something that grew to be a major Fortune 500 company. It's the little guy that somehow find a, found a way to uh, conquer the giants in his past. And I think the message that we hear from this story is this, that if I'm like David, if I can be like David, that I can conquer giants too. It's a good message, and it can play in all areas of our life, that I can conquer the giants in my marriage, or I can conquer the giants in my uh, finances. I can even conquer the giants in my spiritual life. It can apply to all marriage. I think of this uh, song. You remember the, the show, the, uh, the movie, The Prince of Egypt? The theme song, who knows what miracles you can achieve. If you believe, somehow you will. But the question we have to ask ourselves about this great, inspiring message is, is it true? Is it true that we can conquer all obstacles if we simply believe? And if so, what happens when we come up against obstacles in the life that we can't conquer? We're working hard at the office, we're trying to make that sale and we're putting our heart into it, but we just can't seem to make it happen. We've been going to counseling for a year and we've been trying to make it work but we just keep seeming to run into the exact same walls. Or maybe you've been brave and you've gone to all the chemotherapy treatments and you've gone to the rousing stories and you thought you were safe and then you get that report again. I want to suggest to you that this story is not what you think it is. In fact, it's the opposite of what you think it is. And in fact, we are in this story but we're not who we think we are. Rather, our, this story is not about our faith, but it's about God's faithfulness. The story is not about our victory. It's about His. The point of my entire sermon is this. Victory 
is not based on the quantity of our faith. It's rather based on the object of our faith. Not based on the quantity. It's based on the object. Well, we're going to have to face giants. We do it every day. So how are we going to do so? I want to touch on three things because we're going to have to have a champion in our life. Number one, we're either going to make a champion out of something or someone. Number two, we're going to go ahead and have to become a champion. Or number three, we're going to look to the true champion. Victory is based not on the quantity of our faith, rather on the object of our faith. Well, let's look at the first option, making a champion. Little background about this story. We see that you have two forces at war with one another. And they're at a standoff right now. Israelites on one side, Philistines on the other. It's just like the Civil War. But there's a big valley in between. And nobody wants to go in that valley because that valley is the death zone. You go in the valley, you get killed. But we see something a little bit different about Israel. Because Israel, we don't see any ark with the battle. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Israel would always go into the war with the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them to symbolize God leading them into battle. But strangely enough, there is no Ark of the Covenant. Rather, there is a king. His name is Saul. See, the Israelites have asked to have a king appointed over them. 1 Samuel 8 they went to the prophet Samuel and they said, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Samuel protested, saying, you don't want to do this. But they said, yes, we do. We want a king over, of us, over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us to fight our battles. And so Samuel inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, go ahead. It's not you they've rejected, but it's me. Go ahead and choose for them this king. And so uh, the Lord directed Samuel to go find a king, and he found one named Saul. Now, the scriptures tell us that Saul was an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So they found the guy that had the perfect resume. He was big, he was imposing. He was John Wayne-like in his character, okay? Can't you see him with the, with the guns right here? He fit the part perfectly. And so what did they do? They ordained him as king. They anointed him as king. Now, Saul had already had one battle, and he had done magnificently. They had routed the other guys. There was excitement here. Things were brewing. They knew something was going to go down with this battle. And then all of a sudden, out steps Goliath. He was nine feet tall. His armor weighed 125 pounds. His spear tip alone weighed 15 pounds. He was an absolute monster. And he comes out and he yells out in defiance to the Israelites, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he can beat me, we will be your servants. But if I beat him, all of you will become my servants. And you can feel the air just go out of the balloon. See, Goliath is a champion. And in the Hebrew, the word champion literally means man between the two. 
And every now and then it would happen where this would actually happen, where each of the forces would send someone to fight. And whoever won that battle, the entire other force would be enslaved. They would, it would be in effect as if the entire army had won the battle. And it would be done right then and there. That was the confidence they put in their champion. Well, Goliath went and he said this again and again and again. And the scriptures say that the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. They were terrified because if they lost, all of life would end for them. Their wives would go to someone else. Their children would be sold into slavery. They would become slaves of this other country. They would never know life again as they knew it. But they weren't only terrified, they were also dismayed. You know why they were dismayed? Because they didn't have a champion to go out. Who should the champion have been? Should have been Saul, right? Head taller, the one they wanted. He would go out and fight. But Saul is nowhere to be found. Israel's champion has failed them. The question we need to ask is, what do we do when our champions fail us? After the defeat of World War I, Germany was in a very difficult political and economic situation. Under the Versailles Treaty, they had to disarm all of their weapons, give up land, pay heavy reparations. As a result, they were suffering widespread unemployment, runaway inflation, and low national morale. And then he showed up. He had strong vision, incredible oratory skills, he began to paint a vision of a new Germany. He told them that Germany didn't lose the war. Rather, it was stabbed in the back by Jewish and socialist traitors. The Versailles Treaty was a root of all evil. It had to be overturned. It was the Jewish capitalists and communists that were the mortal enemies. But Germany was the superior race destined to rule the world. And if they made him their champion, the Fuhrer would be infallible in all matters of life and death, and the destiny of Germany would be in his hands. And they idolized him. They worshipped him. They turned over control of their country to Adolf Hitler. And Hitler began his rule, ruthlessly exterminating his opposition, brazenly invading Czechoslovakia and Poland and Austria and then France and beginning his program to exterminate over six million Jews. And it was only until later when Germans had realized what they had done, when eight million of their people had died in battles all the way to Stalingrad, six million Jews executed that they realized that they had appointed a champion and instead they had gotten a tyrant. See, we all have champions. All have things that we put in power in our lives that come to us and say that if you make me your Fuhrer, if you make me first in your life, I will give you what you are looking for. Let me give you three of them. Number one, your pocketbook. That if you worship me, the almighty dollar, I will give you what you're looking for. Security, power, wealth, all the things that you're looking for if you'll only worship me. And some of us have. And so we slave and we work we collateralize, we push ourselves to the edge of bankruptcy, only to discover that the things we own soon begin to own us. 
only to discover that we never can quite find enough, only to wreck our health and to end up in disaster. I have a friend of mine who's one of the most wealthy men in Virginia Beach, has everything you might want, the corporate jet, the houses in multiple countries, extremely successful. His son recently came down with a Lou Gehrig's disease. And despite all of the money he has, there's nothing he can do to fix this disaster that's befallen upon him. Will our pocketbook really save us? How about this? Maybe it's a person. He's charming. He's handsome. He's clever. If I give my heart and my life to him, he'll watch over me. He'll give me security. He'll give me the love that I'm looking for. But then you do and you discover that he's demanding, that he has foibles and flaws, that he's a human just like you and me. What do we do when our champions fail us? Maybe this last one, if it's not a pocketbook or a person, maybe it's a paycheck. You give long hours to the company. You're a loyal employee. You go in early and you stay late and you take it for the team and you miss your family's events because the company needs you. You give your heart and soul to the company and then there are downturns in the economy. You gave your heart and they gave you a 30-day severance package. What champions have you made in your life? All of us have made agreements. If you, know, if you want to know what it is in your life, here's the question. It's not what you dream about. It's what you have nightmares about. It's the thing that you have that if I lose this, I will not be able to make it. Whether it's money or job or friends or reputation, there's something we need to do to find the true champion, and that is to cancel the agreement. See, all of us have an agreement, call it an operating agreement, that we've made with the champion of our lives. This day I undersolved, I, I undersigned resolved to make X champion of my life. I will give all of my allegiance and heart and body to you in return for you providing me with peace, security, and eternal life. See, we have to tear up this agreement with these champions that we've made. Now some of you may say, can I really do that? The answer is yes, you can. In fact, if you look all the way at the bottom, there's a footnote right here. Because the one thing we have control over in our lives, and they're not many, is what we will worship. It's only when we decide to cancel the agreement with false champions that we can make space for the true champion. Because victory lies not in the quantity of our faith, but rather in the object of our faith. Well, we have to fill X with something, don't we? So if we've canceled this agreement with these champions, maybe what we have to do is become a champion. Notice, David arrives on the scene here. Verse 24, we see that uh, Goliath comes out and all saw him and they ran away with great fear. But David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And it's such a statement that no one said for the last 40 days that everybody looks at him, just drops their jaw. Don't you, don't you see who this guy is? But David is undeterred. So much so that the word gets back to King Saul. Keep in mind, there are 10,000 people. Who knows, 100,000 people. And the word gets back to Saul. 
And so Saul summons him. And David, this teenager, somewhere between 14, 16, maybe 17, we don't know, turns to Saul and he says, don't lose heart on account of this Philistine. Isn't that interesting? The kid telling the champion, don't lose heart. Saul is absolutely incredulous. You can't fight this guy. He's a a champion. He's been a fighting man since his youth, and you're only a boy. See, Saul does not know who David is. Saul does not know that just a couple of chapters ago, God told the prophet Samuel that I have rejected Saul as king. Now go and find this one and anoint him. He is the true king over Israel. So Saul goes and anoints David. The word anoint in Hebrew is Mashiach, from where we get the word Messiah. Saul doesn't know any of this stuff, but Saul sees the courage of David. So here's what he does. He says, okay, and the Lord be with you. So look here, verse 38. Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So what is Saul doing here? Putting a bronze helmet on on David's head? Well, who has a bronze helmet? Goliath has a bronze helmet. Putting an armor of chain chain mail on his body. Well, who has an uh, armor of chain mail? Goliath does. See, he's trying to make David into a champion like Goliath the champion that Saul couldn't be. He's saying to him, look, you have this courage. Strengthen up. Put on the armor. You can beat Goliath at his own game. But here's the truth of the matter. David puts on that armor and walks out against Goliath and tries to fight him hand to hand. He is going to get slaughtered. See, Saul doesn't understand who Goliath is and he doesn't understand who David is. Think about it. Who is Goliath anyways? Very interesting how they describe Goliath. You know, in the Old Testament, the characters are usually very flat. We don't get a lot of details about them. But Goliath, we get a ton of details. How big is he? How tall is he? How all this information about it. We know he's impossibly strong. He's boastful. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's a murderer. And he defies the armies of the living God. Goliath is a picture of Satan, and he seeks to enslave the people of God. But Saul is saying, you can defeat him. If you believe, you can go out and get him. See, here's where I think we go wrong with this passage. Here's usually the way this passage is preached and the way that we take it. If I can have faith, if I can muster up enough, I can go out there and I can defeat him. I just got to be like David. Don't be like Saul. Be like David. Don't be like Saul. Be like David. I can stand up to evil. I can be a better husband. I can care about people in my work. I can stop looking at those things. I can stop going to the refrigerator. I can win. And so we pray up, and we read up, and we toughen up, and we head down into the valley, and we get crushed. And we walk out of that valley bruised, defeated, and demoralized, saying, I'm never going to do that again. See, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to defeat Satan using his own weapons. Pride, arrogance, 
boastfulness, independence. Think about it. Why did Satan fall anyways from heaven? Because he wanted to be his own guy, his own self-made guy. Trying to be your own champion is like trying to be like Satan. I remember it was my sophomore year. I was on the varsity wrestling team, wrestling 126 as a sophomore, and I was in a great position. I was just doing it to get in shape. And the captain of the team, a senior, was 126 pounds as well. So I just got to work out and then hang out at the meets until he got injured. It was a big meet. I'm a sophomore. Opening round match, first one I've done, and I've got to go up. But I'm ready. I mean, the guys, they've got me pumped up. I'm excited. And then I discover I'm wrestling the captain of the other team and that he's a junior Olympian of the other team. Now, he weighed 126. I weighed 126. But when you looked at me, you could tell I weighed 126. <laughs> when you looked at him, he weighed about 185. Okay? <laughs> Nevertheless, you know, the, it's hometown crowd. We're excited. You know, he's on one side of the mat. I'm on the other side of the mat. Whistle goes. We go head to head. We, we both shoot at the same time. We butt heads into each other. So we step back again. But, I mean, the crowd, I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm going to take this guy out. Whistle goes again. And it was literally like a blur came before me. <laughs> I, I couldn't even see him before he was at my legs and around and had pushed my face into the mat. And for the next several minutes proceeded to destroy me in front of all of my friends and my girlfriend. He did this thing called the bow and arrow. He was the arrow, I was the bow, okay? <laughs> and he bended me into this awful position, finally got my shoulders on the mat. There was the pin and I laid there crushed in front of all of my people. See, I thought I could beat him. I thought I could take him. I mean, we're the same weight. Why not? I vastly underestimated my opponent. <laughs> There's a great poem called Invictus. I don't know if you saw the movie Invictus. Pretty famous poem. It goes something like this. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. It matters how, not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. When asked if he had any last words, these were the words of Timothy McVeigh, the mastermind of the Oklahoma City bombings. To try to defeat Satan is to become like him. Perhaps you have gone into that valley yourself and engaged in battle with Goliath. Whatever your struggle is, maybe you have self-esteem issues. You have a horrible picture of yourself. Some of us have horrible pictures that were handed down to us that play over again and again in our mind. And we don't want to think that way of ourselves, and so we try and we fight, and we fight, and we go into the battle, but we continue to be defeated again and again and again. Whatever your issues, eating or addiction 
or relational. The truth of the matter is you were not meant to be your own champion. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to resign. I want you to take off your chainmail, put down your helmet and your sword. Resign from being a champion. If you've already canceled all other champions, I want you to do one more. I want you to draft your letter of resignation. Because the truth of the matter is, whatever battle you're in, the first step to victory is giving up on yourself. There's only one champion, and you're not it. It's only when you resign that you free yourself up to look to the true champion. This is my final point, looking to the true champion. David comes against Goliath, not with a sword, not with a spear, but with a sling and a stone. And he said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. All those here gathered will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is in the Lord's. See, David is saying to Goliath, your power is in you. My power is in the one who sent me. The reason I will win is because the battle is the Lord's. See, there are two key things I want you to understand about David. Number one, it's David who is sent by God Almighty. David is the one who is God's representative, his chosen one, no one else. And since he is the chosen one, he comes with God's power, which trumps everything else. We already talked about who Goliath is. Who's David? Guess what? It's not us. David is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is called in the scriptures the branch of David, the offspring of David. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. It's a picture of Jesus. God has sent us a champion, and it's not us, it's him. He's the one who fights for us. See, we're in this story, but we're not David, and we're not Saul. You know who we are? We're the coward on the side of the hill. That's who we are. And David goes down into the valley of the shadow of death, and he conquers death itself, not with a sword, not with a shield, but in weakness and suffering. The tools of his kit, a crown of thorns, three iron nails, and a blood-stained cross. Jesus Christ conquered death by dying for us and rising again. See, I need a champion, and Jesus is that champion. I don't need an example. I don't need someone to emulate. I need someone who will actually fight for me on my behalf, who will go down into the valley for me, in the broken places of my life, who will help me to love my wife, who will give me the victory in being patient with my kids who will give me victory in standing up to the suffering and evil and injustice of this world. See, Jesus shows the courage I never had to fight the battle I never win, fought to win the victory I never won. As our champion, Jesus not only fought for us, he fought as us. 
as becoming a man. He was the man between the two. And the scriptures tell us that through his triumph as champion on our behalf, his victory was imputed to me. His righteousness was imputed to me, and his courage is imputed to me through him. How does the story end? Jesus slays Goliath, remember? And he stands over him and he cuts his head off. This is a direct reference to Genesis 3.17, where right after Satan had defeated Adam and Eve, God prophecies to the woman saying, and there will be one, the offspring of the woman, who will cut off the head, who will crush the head of the serpent. It's Jesus, not ourselves, who gives us the victory over Satan and over sin. So we are the people that need a champion to fight. How do we do that? Close with this. In the famous chapter of Hebrews 11, the Bible lists the heroes of the faith. It's sometimes called God's Hall of Fame. These people who had great faith, and they did great things. Abraham is there. David's there. Samuel's there. These are examples of the ones who have gone before us. And we are told to remember them. But at the end of the section, it tells us to do something different with Jesus. It says not to remember Jesus, not to emulate Jesus, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, our archegos, which in the Greek means champion. We are to look for our champion Jesus to come and fight on our behalf. What battle are you in right now? Maybe you feel like you're living a defeated, marginal life, whether a Christian or not. The victory you hear about in other people's lives, you do not see in yours. You line up every day for battle, and every day you see Goliath, and you're dismayed and terrified. How long have you been on that hill looking across? A day? Five years? Ten years? Why? Could it be that you're so busy listening to Goliath that when Jesus comes up beside you, you don't even recognize him? Take your eyes off your enemy and look to your champion, Jesus. In fact, one of the marks of how mature your faith in Christ is is how little trust you put in yourself and how much you look to him for even the most basic things in your life. Friend, in your marriage, your ministry, your job, your trials and the sufferings, you were meant for victory. But it only comes in Christ. Every day there's going to be a battle, friends. It doesn't go away. We often don't get to choose the battles that we fight. But we get to choose the champions that we pick. We will have to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. But if Jesus is our champion, we will be able to say that he goes before us. And he will prepare a table in the midst of our enemies. Cancel all agreements with counterfeit champions. Resign your position as champion. And look to Jesus, the champion of your faith. And you and the world will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he surely will give our enemies into our hands. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that there is a champion and it is not us. Lord, we don't have to posture. We don't have to pose. We don't have to get all excited and rallied and find our strength and get out there because we're going to lose. 
But in you we find victory, for you are the one that has gone into the valley who has conquered death itself and risen again. And because you were our champion, the man that stood between the two, we can have victory in you as we look to you. Lord, help us to give up on the things that we make champions. Help us to give up on ourselves and to look to you as our true champion. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we now come to a uh, time in our service.